Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we've got another very special guest episode. We're, we, yeah. We're joined by Dr. Madeline Von Beyer, an archaeobotanist and a research fellow at the Harvard University Herbaria. We're talking plants. Very, very old plants. Yes. So, Madeline, thank you for joining us. I am so very excited. Um we haven't really gotten the chance to talk much about archaeological plants, at least not sort of in a how do you do this kind of way. Yeah, no problem. I'm really excited, too. Um, OK, so we have our first question, which is, first of all, in terms of your specific field of study, how would you characterize yourself in terms of what you do and your your title? And then what has your education slash career trajectory been up to this point? I consider myself, I guess, first and foremost, I'm an anthropologically trained archaeologist, like Mm -hmm. everyone else on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Well, yeah. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah, so far. So far, yep. Mm, (laughs) Yep, I I would say so, yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so I did get my PhD in anthropology and with the specialization of archaeology and within that archaeobotany or paleoethnobotany, depending on what you want to call it. They're the same thing. In the US, it tends to be called paleoethnobotany and in the UK, it tends to be called archaeobotany. Um, and even though I was trained in a US lab, we called ourselves the archaeobotany lab. So Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, so I refer to myself as an archaeobotanist cause I'm used to it, but it is no different than a paleo. Do you also, do you also wear trousers and, <laughs> and put things in the boot of your car? My, um, my British, uh, godson is very upset that I do not do either of those things <laughs> and has <laughs> corrected me multiple times <laughs> when I have said the wrong thing. Well, oh, visiting you? <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Um, no, just just archaeobotany. Yeah. Uh, and spoiler alert: we do know a little bit about your educational history. Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> we went to the same school. We did. So we we we're bringing it back home because we we've mm, talked to mm-hmm. plenty of people who to the mothership did not go to Bryn Mawr. <laughs> yeah, but you did. So tell us, yeah, tell tell us, us a little bit that. about that and what, yeah. what came after. Um, so ba- I got into archaeobotany as a reasonable extension, but maybe not a 
completely premeditated (laughs) of my my archaeological uh, uh, career trajectory. I started out as like a in the field excavating archaeologist. I was really interested in landscapes. Um, I got my master's degree at the University of Chicago and I wrote about um, architecture there and like Neolithic stairs in Jordan. Oh, that's um, so yeah. very specific and awesome. Stairs. Yeah, Who knew? it was. It was, that was an experience. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. And then um, when I went to apply for PhD programs, that was a time for me to think about what I was really interested in archaeology and what I thought was really interesting. And to me, the very interesting thing in archaeology is sort of, how do things that people do at a local level affect a site, affect site level things, affect regional level things, affect super regional level things? Oh, so you're interested in, in scale. Like, yeah. Scaled effects. Cool. And households. I was also very interested in, in looking at households in that way. And that led me to consider applying uh, for a few archaeobotanical programs. Specifically, um, I got my PhD at the University of Connecticut with um, Alexia Smith. And so she, even though I hadn't had any previous experience at all with uh, plants or studying plants, that is one thing that Bryn Mawr nor the University of Chicago do. Although, No, it's just not, not really an option. Yeah. Although I do have to say, uh, one of the, why very wonderful colleague of mine, um, did get her PhD at the university of Chicago. Um, and while I was there, there was a little bit, uh, um, it was possible to study plants. I just didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so then I, I, I got accepted to the university of Connecticut and I had a long conversation about whether or not, you know, what interests me in archaeology, if I thought that uh, archaeobotany was the way to go. And then once I got there, I also had sort of a long conversation and multiple conversations about what type of archaeobotanist do I want to be? Do I want to be like a field archaeologist with knowledge of uh, archaeobotanical sampling and recovering and stuff like that, but mainly focus on digging and possibly being a, um, a dig director and staying really involved in the field excavation? Or do I want to become a, um, a, a real specialist, one who sort of gets out of the field, or that's not really true, but gets out of like the actual uh, excavating in the trenches and stays more in the lab and does a lot of lab work. Uh, and at first I thought I wanted to be the former. So I wanted to stay digging and doing archaeobotany. But the more I found out or the more I realized really what archaeobotanical lab work was, what questions was it, uh, how it was and how I could fit into a dig. Being an archaeobotanist, I transitioned into a lab uh, archaeobotanist. And the way that I view myself right now 
for a lot of different reasons. I am a lab specialist who absolutely goes into the field. So I go into the field. I do analysis in the field. I do sampling in the field. I'm there in uh, mainly Turkey, but in other places where you need me. And then while everyone else is digging, I am either at my flotation machine or I am at my microscope uh, uh, extracting plant materials or analyzing plant materials. So for me, this was like a, the happiest medium uh, where you can still get all the fun of being on a dig <laughs> and, <laughs> without uh, without as many sunburns. <laughs> hey, that's good. You know, that's healthy. Um, I'll have you know when I was at field school and I pitched in at the flotation machine, I still got a sunburn. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I mean, the flotation machine does give you a lot of sunburns, and I worry about the back of my hands a lot. But. <laughs> um, so huh. I think that's a great segue into yeah, segue. Uh, the next question, um, which is is um, possibly one that I came up with because even though I did spend a winter in the company of a, a paleoethnobotanist um, who convinced me for about mm, 15 minutes that I definitely wanted to do this. And like everyone on this, on this field school, we were just like, Oh my God, she's amazing. This is the coolest thing ever. I want to do that. Like she's so awesome. And then we came back and I think we all went to Carpenter to the, the library there that had all of the archeological um like the archaeology major books and we got a book on like archaeobotanicals and we're like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and it killed it for all of us. (laughs) Which, which uh, what that tells me is that was not a very good book. Exactly. So, um, was it it like the methods? Was it the, Oh, who knows? I know. I have, I have no idea, but it was not, it was not, walking around the edge of sight and like following this like incredible Swedish woman who just like hacked off bits of plant and was like, this, hmm. this started growing here 3000 years ago. And this <laughs> is what the lagoon looked like. And we're just like, Oh my God, she's a wizard. So, but what, so Madeline, can you, can you tell us <laughs> what is paleoethnobotany? Like, what do you actually do? And like, can you explain? And I'll include if nothing else from, my own field school, like uh, a photo of a flotation machine. So like what yes. people might be thinking of like those zero, like sensory, like the sensory mm-hmm. deprivation tank. <laughs> sensory pods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not, that's not what it's we're not talking that. about. So I'm, no, I'm, sure I'm with that. you that far that I know yeah. you aren't just like floating weightlessly. Uh, <laughs> sounds nice. What, oh, do sounds you, nice. What, what do you do? What? <laughs> yeah. I can also send you photos. Uh, my, I have some majestic. Oh, please do. Majestic. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, we want them. Oh, it's going to come back. I'm going to want to do it again. Plants. <laughs> <laughs> Paleoethnobotany is really the um, study of ancient plants and people and their relationship. And that's that it, it encompasses all of that. I guess the first hurdle is to find the ancient plants which is which Good. is where yes. these flotation machines come in. So the idea is, and it does work this way, is that if plants are charred within a specific temperature um, while they are being used on site, 
during the time period that you're excavating, they will preserve their shape. So they become little bits of charcoal that are still in the same shape of the seeds or the plant parts that they were. I should say I am talking only about what we call macrobotanical remains because I do macrobotanical remains, which means you can see them with your eyes. So yeah, no microscope necessarily needed. Yeah. Um, there's also micro botanical remains, which are things like phytolith and starch and, um, sometimes pollen. I'm always unclear, uh, but it, it sort of gets lumped into there. And I don't really, that is similar, but different enough that I'm not really going to talk about that. I don't have very, it's okay. We have, we have a part two guest tentatively lined up to talk about that, that half of things. Great. So great. So I'll do just not talk worry. About stuff I know. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give us the macro. And so um, this would be this. So this would be like if I was making rice and <laughs> some of it fell out of the pot oh, into the fire, okay. and and so it got charred, mm-hmm. and then you come along in the future, and you will find my charred bits of rice. Yeah, I scoop up all that dirt. Okay. And um, the good thing about charcoal is that it floats in water and uh, rocks and sediment and sand and dirt don't. So the big idea between a flotation tank is just a fancy way to separate out a uh, bucket of dirt. So you pour this bucket of dirt into a large thing of water, usually running water so that you can um, skim off the top. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everything that floats rises to the top. You usually catch any of the rocks or a lot of times the bones and the pottery and things that are in that bucket of dirt. And then the silt and stuff drops all the way to the bottom. So the idea is you have this top layer of we call light fraction, which is charcoal and modern plant bits and sometimes insects and bones, small bones sometimes float too. And you collect all of that and you dry it and then you can analyze that with a low-powered microscope. This is where it gets confusing because we still need to use microscopes to be able to see the... Because they're very small. They are still very small. But if you back away from it, you can at least see there's like a speck of charcoal. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike a phytolith where you just can't identify. absolutely microscopic, yeah. (laughs) Right. So in the field, the um, the things that I do if I'm working the flotation machine is probably once or twice during a field week. I'll go out on site. I'll talk to the people digging in trenches. We will confer about, about area places that are good for sampling because archaeobotanical sampling is a little bit different than ceramic sampling and um, uh zooarchaeological sampling because it's not it's usually not feasible to float 100 percent of the site that's just way too much dirt and way too much time so when you come up with a sampling strategy you define the size of the samples you want and it's literally archaeologists all they have to do is take that dirt 
and dump it into a bucket and a bag and put it aside. <laughs> it's very easy. It's more difficult. It's more difficult to convince field archaeologists to do that than it is to like actually deal with the sample. <laughs> hey, give me that dirt. Give me that dirt. Yes, all, all of right. it. Yes, all give, of it. Yes. No, really. <laughs> I do mean I want the whole bucket. So. Do you have, so you, you said, you know, this would be during a field season, it would be um, during the course of a typical week in the field. So what does a typical research day look like for you? Is there a typical day? Is it different every day? Do you have, what do you do? Walk us field? through, walk us through a day. Either, yeah, one in a day in the field and then a day in the lab, maybe. Um, a day in the field looks usually, well, it depends on what it depends on how much help I have, and it depends on what the focus is. So um, if it's just me, if I'm the only archaeobotanist on site and people are sampling, then I'm usually running that flotation machine to uh, create those light fractions. If I have help, then someone else can run the flotation machine, and I can spend the time while people are in the field. I can be at my microscope and doing actual analysis. Um, and, um, and I guess the analysis in the field or not in the field looks pretty much the same where I use generally a low powered microscope, a dissecting scope or a stereoscope. And you take yeah, the kind that you'd find in a bio class. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like just the emoji, like the microscope. Yeah. Emoji. yeah. <laughs> yes. You hear that? You hear that youths? <laughs> It's based like the on emoji. the real thing that we <laughs> <people> use. <laughs> oh. um, and then it is just a um, the process of continually looking at these small things of light fraction to break it down into smaller and smaller categories until eventually you have reached as far as you can go. So by that, I mean, when you first like dump all of your light fraction out uh, under the microscope, it's filled with modern plants. And like I said, bugs and bones and shells mm. and charcoal. So that's the first step. You get rid of anything you think that you are not interested in. And it's pretty easy to tell. <laughs> so when you say modern plants, those are plants that aren't Charles. that were recently living. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. Yeah. But, it, but it is it's OK. So that's something that would have gotten like mixed in with the sample. Because mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. where I work, especially in Turkey, um, as, and especially if you go back to a site year after year, it depends on how enclosed the site is. So if you're working on a site that's sort of open air, uh, modern weeds and stuff grow in the trenches all the time. And um, and so they and they float. So they get mixed up with the right. with the with everything else. So it's not it's not a problem. It's it's not hard. You just put it aside. <laughs> that one's green. I use that one's green. That one's green. Um, I do. I do use. I'd say I do use uh, paint brushes and stuff to do this. So um, with the when this is a section of archaeology where where I conform to the not quite. It's a real science. 
Yeah, and the not quite real trope of like archaeologists going around with little paintbrushes. Um, <laughs> I do, but that's because I'm using like little pieces of charcoal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I separate those out, and then you know you separate out things like the wood from the seeds. You can tell pretty easily what would be wood and what would be seeds, and then um, and then once you, you get into the seed parts, then I usually go into the different types of seeds. And it can change like things that I decide are like uh, cereal grains, legumes and weed seeds over and over again until you have like a group of seeds where you're like, aha, I know you. These are the same. These are the same. These are exactly this type of thing. Or you're like, these are the things I do not know and cannot figure out. But this is what I think it is. And Um, then you and then you send pictures to all your colleagues and go, eh? (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least that's that's how it works for for me back in the long ago days when i used to do research like two years ago right. um with with zoark with with animal bone remains a lot of times you get a little nubbin of something and you just you just don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. generally like, some somebody will yeah because then you have to do it, it's like does, will no one know but it's just like but there's this thing that i feel like people will know what this thing is People, yeah, like somebody's got to know this thing, and then yeah, then That's, send it around. I do love archaeological Twitter for just that reason because it's full of archaeologists of various specializations just going, "Hey, there's this thing. I've seen this thing before. Has anybody else seen this thing? What is this thing?" And it's great because yeah. usually someone will be like, "I know that thing," <laughs> and then yeah. hopefully someone else will be like, "I." I totally agree with the other person and not yeah. be like, oh, no, it's this other thing. And you're like, this yeah, I'm just like, oh, beans. <laughs> OK, well, speaking of things. Um, <laughs> what a segue. You're a champ. We're um, professionals. What what types of things can we learn from macrobotanical remains? So you spend all this time and all this energy. Uh, yeah, you've sorted things. them into categories so, yeah. now. And what, so what? What do you know? Temptation to reply everything is so strong. <laughs> say it. Do it. Good. I'm do glad it. it was you were tempted to say everything and not nothing. Oh, <laughs> nothing like, would be uh-huh. too too depressing. No, <laughs> everything. No. Um, the sort of the idea behind archaeobotany is that um, Plant, and, and this applies to our life, too, and I really do believe this. The way that we use and interact with plants is fundamental in many ways and has really shaped a lot of different networks in our lives. So originally, way back when, like, way, like, 100 years ago, um, <laughs> So I guess far. that's fair. Archaeology <laughs> time. Okay, yeah, thank you. Because like, okay, get this. A hundred years ago, people. Like early twentieth century. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> when archaeologists were digging really giant holes in the ground. Yeah. When that was archaeology. Chunk, chunk, chunk. The good days. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Golden age. Mm. Mm. They would. <laughs> come across like one or two or three like burnt economic crops like usually cereals and then say we found this and they were eating it and so uh archaeobotany started sort of as a list of 
things that people were eating. But as archaeobotany grew into a discipline and more people really started devoting their life and career to understanding it, they realized that actually archaeobotany, you can, the remains, one, don't always represent what people were eating. And two, you can use what types of plants are found at a site to talk about so many other things. Um, looking at where plants were processed and like maybe food was prepared goes into uh, division of labor and economic systems. Um, look, looking at whether or not there are surpluses stored and things like that are even bigger, like redistribution. Um networks and sort of political and economic systems. Um, sometimes, and I found this in my dissertation site, what you're looking at doesn't actually reflect what humans were eating, but reflects what animals were eating. So that yeah. can talk a lot about environmental exploitation and larger agricultural systems and land use. Um, and really, and sometimes if you're lucky, this didn't have the, um, you can get like a large, like luxury trade things, like how plants move around the landscape in long distances, what, what that means if you're, if these plants are moving around, um, and sort of the interconnectedness between like reg large regions. So, you know what that made me think of just total tangent, but, um, did either of you ever read about fern mania i think it was in the hmm, 1700s like 1800s well yeah fern like the plant and they just became like the hot thing to collect people got obsessed with ferns and they were like especially i think in the uk but throughout europe and like populations of local ferns were decimated because people were digging them up and, and planting them in their, you know, for their salons. Spe just speaking of like luxury plants, I was yeah. just thinking about like, what, what, what are we doing? So are you talking about <laughs> when you talk about sort of luxury plants or like movement of plants, are you talking about yeah, what's a luxury the, plant? the whole, well, for that, like, are you talking about the whole plant moving? Like this would be something that would be like ornamental or agricultural or are you talking about how this is something where again with my rice that i made like if that <laughs> rice is if rice if, is if it's luxury rice if, if it's like <laughs> in, if it's yeah. imported like as a grain and then i'm processing it and eating it and burning it in the process um is it is it either of those situations like where it's the plant itself or is it the, the food like, well, the, or the, the, the product, the of final the product of the plants yeah. in the case of macro botanical yeah. remains? It is. It's usually um, what you're calling with the product. Like okay. it was essentially and this is it's difficult in my work. Um, I have never had the chance to ever assume that another site was creating any of the plants that like it just doesn't make that much sense for what we know right now about the archaeology um, that anything was really grown off site and then portions of those things were imported into right. mm -hmm. other sites. But this is a big question of like Iron Age Britain um, and things like oh, we that. We love Iron Age Britain. <laughs> they so 
such good work. <laughs> also, um, what were they doing? Yeah. And burying people all weird. Well, and, and doing weird things with plants too. Is that yeah, yeah, what I you're guess. talking about? Yeah. yeah. They, well, they, they have this idea and then this is hotly contested. So I don't want to come down on one Ooh. side or another. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, tell us, tell us oh, spill that tea. Controversy. <laughs> Oh, and this is see. This is probably what you read as an undergrad, and we're like, oh god. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the question of like consumer sites and producer sites, like um, mm-hmm. they have multiple. Um, I want yeah, like like these the little chiefdom sites that they have, um, where they have lots. Some of them have lots of cereal seeds. Some of them have more like um, byproducts of the cereal um and so the question is what does it mean if at a site you have more grains versus more chaff and like where where can you reasonably expect these things to be grown are they uh are, mul- are multiple sites supplying these grains for or, or is one site supplying these grains for multiple sites and and these questions um okay yeah, and maybe is it an issue of preservation? Like, if you just find chaff at one site, is it because all the chaff at the other sites wasn't there, mm-hmm. or did it not preserve through time? Or yeah, there's all, I'm sure there's all kinds of factors. Yeah, that can make it very complicated for you. Mm-hmm. And that was a big thing for me at at my site for my dissertation, where it was like, well, I have I clearly have these plants, but how how did they get here? they very sadly to me at the very beginning it didn't it didn't at all in any way look like just there was one one um just one sample where i could tell that someone was cooking a pot of lentils and then i think the courtyard erupted into flame and oh no yeah and they abandoned that pot of lentils in that cooking. And you would. And it was food. And I can say that. And that is one sample out of 60. <laughs> um, follow up question. Did the courtyard erupt into flames because that person was cooking? Like, was it the, the cook fire that got out of control or these were two separate events and that person was just like, oh, no, I got to go. Maybe. okay the the other there are there are there were two sort of pot emplacement things found in hearths um around the same time i think associated with this courtyard fire it was hard to trace exactly where the courtyard or maybe maybe they did and i just have forgotten uh (laughs) that's okay but um in my yeah, mind, it turns out and I think arson investigation is hard. It's it happened at the same time. Something happened. <laughs> so would oh, be no. like, um, guys, guys, huh, huh, yeah. uh, Okay. Well, <laughs> well, 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 how about listeners? Why don't you just go check, make sure you turn the stove off. Go check your lentils. Go check your lentils and we'll be right back because we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. 
We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back. We're still with Madeline Von Beyer. Uh, she didn't run away in the meantime. So that's that's a success. Yeah, her frankly. courtyard did um, not- burst into flames nope Mm -hmm. but our next question possibly a very important one do you have a favorite archaeological plant i thought really long and hard about this (laughs) (laughs) and i realized that i do (laughs) we really like to ask the hard-hitting questions around here we are true journalists yeah at first i was gonna hedge and say no they're all special in different ways oh but that's not true (laughs) yeah I mean, they're super not. It's it's easier to say the plants that I that well, the seeds that I'm just like, (laughs) Mm. but 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 actually, no, my favorite. I think my favorite archaeological plant is flax. Oh, huh. Um, Because it, it is so versatile. It's unusual enough for me to be excited when I find it. Like, I don't always know if I'm going to be able to find it. So flax um, can be eaten uh the fibers can be made to uh can be um it's made linen, into textiles right? yeah linen, linen and they can be um processed for oil and so yeah they're oily seeds which means they look different flax even charred look kind of shiny which is oh, that makes sense yeah. yeah after looking at like hundreds and thousands of little bits of charcoal so like a little shiny seed is a little bit exciting and it has a very pleasing shape it's like rounded it has a little fun little hook at the bottom and because it's oily it when it gets too hot it expands in funny ways so you often get like bubbles coming out of it so oh like popcorn yeah Mm -hmm. so morphologically it's fun and also, it is the topic of one of the best archaeobotanical articles out there, I think, called The Fiber Revolution by Joy McCorriston, which... Oh! Yeah. It does I'm familiar an, with her work. It, I mean, she's amazing. She's one of the few um, dig director and archaeobotanist people mm-hmm. out there. Um, and what she did, and it's now a pretty old one. I just looked it up. It was published in 1997, but what she does is really link the shift from uh, the use of linen to the use of sheep's wool and textiles, uh, in Mesopotamia from the Neolithic to the bronze age and what that means about household labor 
and gender and agricultural intensification and extensification and really tying for me all of these things that are so interesting and what make plants understanding plants so interesting like really tying it to all these um, local and regional scalar questions and showing how integrated shifts like this are in ancient um, uh, time, like just in any society, really. So that's that's why yeah, I- we can um, if we find a good link to that, we will put that on our show notes. Yeah. So that listeners can also read it and go, wow. Yeah, plants. Sorry for linking a very academic article. Oh no, <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> we we have we always have a variety so that yeah. listeners can jump in at any depth they want. Yeah, and I'm a big Joy McCoriston fan. So <laughs> you, you stand, you stand, yes. Joy McCoriston. We we stand a queen. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, are we cool yet? We're doing it. <laughs> we were Anna. Then you had to like act like you've been here, Anna. <laughs> so oh oh great one of my questions um mm-hmm. so this is this is another throwback to that brief time on my field school when i was my eyes were open to the wonder of plants um has and then immediately closed by <laughs> a book closed by a terrible book um so has your research changed the way you see the landscape around you like either on site when you walk out onto your site there in turkey or just in everyday life like walking to like camp Coffee. walking to campus so you're like oh you're thinking about plants yeah <laughs> <laughs> totally and yeah I- Absolutely. Uh, right now, I'm the the thing I'm doing at Harvard um, is actually a bit distanced from actual archaeob well traditional archaeobotanical work. Um, I am uh, creating a dig- I'm creating digitized records and images of this huge wood slide collection, and it's a historical collection from um, uh, samples that were collected from about mid-19th century to mid-20th century. So I'm working with microscope slides, and on these microscope slides are thin sections of actual wood um, tissue. Mm -hmm. And then I'm running them through a really fancy scanner to create... Uh, to create uh, images and digital records of them so that people like me and archaeologists and actual wood charcoal people um, have access, have online access to this collection that previously is only accessible if you go into the basement of the uh, Harvard Herbaria. Which is great because if you are a researcher in the field and you don't necessarily have access to a huge collection of physical specimens, yeah. but you do have Wi-Fi, you can. Or if you're a researcher, compare. if you're a, a researcher or a student or anyone at a school that isn't Harvard. Oh well, yeah, yeah, of mm-hmm. course. And you're broke, mm-hmm. you can still Pictures. have access to to this material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you for your service. Oh, anytime. I really <laughs> like it. <laughs> um, and so the amount that I think about trees, I have to say, just noticing trees and appreciating trees, <laughs> and thinking about 
how beautiful the cellular structure of trees look <laughs> and like and also because I'm in the herbaria and I'm surrounded by plant people um <laughs> like ants no not like ants you big nerd <laughs> but people who would probably gladly become ants <laughs> they're not or I have to say um and plant and not even plant like cryptogamic people who study like fungi and lichen and moss and al- or algae, which yes. aren't actually plants. These are things I've learned. Um, <laughs> and just the appreciation of uh, small growing things in the landscape, even in mm. like Boston and Cambridge and stuff is it, it. I can't, I can't look at the landscape now without remarking on that and and seeing that and thinking about that so that's beautiful so you you see you see life in places that you wouldn't necessarily have seen it without this research and life uh, finds a way honestly feel very happy (laughs) yeah oh that's so nice so when you so you spend i am assuming the majority of your time when you're not um quarantined and self-isolating um you spend most of your time doing this scanning project at harvard but um does your research take you lots of places or do you consider yourself sort of an anatolian specialist mostly sticking to turkey and environs it can and i want it to (laughs) (laughs) yes um and it's interesting um Actually, when we, as a segue to the Mummy Project, okay. yes, 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 okay. yes, uh, okay. the Mummy Project is the way that I came about on this Mummy Project is emblematic of, um, I think, of many archaeobotanists' experience um, and sort of our role in archaeology in general. But I would say, in terms of other archaeologists and other archaeobotanists trusting me and branching out into other regions. I think I can get away with studying adjacent regions because they share similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely I've done some work in the Mediterranean. Um, I'm, I don't, Europe is pushing it sometimes. The things I see from Europe, I'm like, that's a, that's not a thing I have to deal with at all. Um, <laughs> going going a bit east, like going into like Central Asia, things like that. That's also a possibility because a lot of the floras are shared, and also that's the way that plants move through the landscape. Um, in ways, I'm a little bit lucky. I started in Turkey because a lot of the domesticates um, were either domesticated right around that region, but uh, Anatolia was definitely a big crossing point of a lot of uh, economic yep. plants. So so like wheat um, and barley and what else are we talking about? Lentils and chickpeas. Mm. Uh, the, the now not so known bitter vetch, which grows all over the site, my site in Turkey, which is exciting. That's a Fabaceae, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yay. I went for a hike yesterday and I saw a lot of vetch because it's all blooming here now. And I was like, oh. that's a bean. <laughs> or a pea, rather. It's a pea. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah. Pe- All right. Sorry. Things like that. Okay. So, yeah. so I can, I can hack it in old world. Um, I would need extensive, um, extensive crash course for new world stuff. But, but a lot of times since there aren't that many archaeobotanists or paleoethnobotanists, you get pulled in for things that you might not have ever dealt with before. <laughs> and you just learn real fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that mummy project? Yeah. yeah. Can Please, can yeah. you tell us about the mummy? Yeah, tell us about the mummy project. You already teased it. The- I did, because that's what happened on the mummy project. <laughs> So the they were like, we need a plant person. Yeah. They, they, well, it, and then you come it, in and you're like, that's a mummy. Like, <laughs> Thank you. I'm done. I'm done here. We're good. We're good. Um, yeah, so the mummy project and um, you should really put up the Harvard Crimson article about it. Okay. We will. Uh, because, oh, the Gazette. I'm sorry. The Harvard Gazette article. Because it, um, it, that's the best explanation of it. Plus, it has a link to what the the Sketchfab um, digital imagery. Yeah. The so so well. Let, let's back up for a little bit because what yeah. what is the project? Who? What are you? What are you? What are you looking at? A mummy, Anna. Mummy. Okay. It's <laughs> all so right. From what, from what <laughs> I learned, I have to say I was the most late addition to this project, which I'll get into. But this mummy project was designed because Harvard had these sarcophagi um, that they hadn't really, they, they're, the Semitic Museum at Harvard is trying to digitize its collection and uh, open up the opportunity for more people to have access to their collection. And That's they, good. Uh, yeah, and they wrote a grant to, uh, image and digitize these three mummy sarcophagi that they had in their collection that had been, I don't think they had been fully documented. Um, I think they were excavated mm-hmm. probably around a hundred years ago. And then they were partially documented in the seventies. That tracks. Yeah. yeah. And, and so then, and then this project, the goal too, was to bring in as many um, people and specialists as they could. They brought in some people from UCL. They brought in Harvard extension school students for like museum studies. They brought in um, like digital imagery people and they all got together for a week in like January, I want to say. So they took the sarcophagi out of storage for like one week in January and said, okay, we're going to like extensively collect all the data we can about these things. And they made digital. Sarcophagus power hour. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they, they did all these hand-drawn sketches and they, and they actually opened them up for the first time in like 50 years and um, uh, made extensive uh, documentation of the insides and the outsides and and what actually the materials that these things were made of. And so I'm pretty sure that it was probably during, I don't exactly know this, but it was probably during a time when they were trying to figure out what materials uh, were being used for all the different layers of the sarcophagi and the mummies when they were like, you know what? 
maybe we should have <laughs> someone um, identify the wood because they had a tentative identification. But then actually they had two tentative identifications and they contradicted each other. And Oopsies. Yeah, there was either sycamore fig or um, Lebanon cedar. Those were the two tentative identifications and they and I don't think that they had much documentation on on these identifications so they wrote to Harvard is also trying to integrate all of its museums it has like seven or nine or something museums on campus and they're trying to um, share information and and support Good each job, other. Good job, Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> I think How commendable. Goal. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great job. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, one of the uh, director of collections wrote to the director of collections of the Herbaria and was like, do you have anyone who can identify <laughs> this wood from these mummy sarcophagi? And I had previously talked to people from the Semitic Museum and told them what I was doing and that I was at Harvard. Uh, (laughs) And luckily, I am on very good terms with my director of collections. So she immediately emailed me and was like, are you would you be interested in this? And I was like, yes, yes, I would. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What a great email to get. Yeah. Hey, you want to look at a mummy? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, that, that's a thing that I definitely would be interested in. Um, and then we were back and we're like, okay, I think maybe we can do it. Like this was, I think, on like a Tuesday or Wednesday. We're like, maybe we can do it next Tuesday because I I was like, well, if I'm going to actually do this and sample it. I want to be able to at least read a little bit, like find <laughs> some, some ideas of what to do because I've never done this before. Um, and they were like, oh no, no, you have to do it on Friday, like by Friday. Uh, because like the mummy had plans. They had plans for the mummy. It was going back into storage. They were like, it's out for this week. And then we are putting it back in storage. Like, like an old Disney movie. They're putting it back in the vault. Back in the vault. (laughs) For another 40 Um, years. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Until, yeah, until. Until they can remaster it. Yeah. Again, exactly. re-remaster for our new holograph players. Anyway, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I so, hope so. So then we were like, okay, that's in like three days. Um, so then we were like, all right, we can come like Friday afternoon and uh, sample some of the mummy, of the sarcophagi. We did not sample any of the mummy. We only sampled the actual coffins. And so we went there and... It was tricky because the goal when doing a project like this is always to sample something that that is useful and can be identified, but it's a destructive sampling. So you don't want, you can't really, you can't mar the exterior. You have to choose places where it's not going to be harmful since this is a museum artifact and if it's ever put on display you can't just be like this is where i took a chunk of wood out from the side 
I'd read up on like recommended sizes and the size wasn't too big. It was like two millimeters by two millimeters. So we essentially went around, um, all of the, the tops and the bottoms of two of the coffins. I think the third coffin had already been put back in storage. Um, and just figured out areas where I could probably try to sample areas that may or may not, uh, be useful. And, and then, um, essentially like for one of them, I like sampled it and then like 20 minutes later turned around and they had put the lid back on the entire coffin and they carried the coffin into storage. So it was a little bit like as these things were being put away, I was like, Ooh, let me grab this little block. So yeah. So sometimes uh, people to go back to the specialty idea, sometimes people care a lot about uh, where, what you have trained in identifying and sometimes people care that you know about wood above all others and don't really care if you have ever seen <laughs> any of the Wait, so was it was it fig or cedar? So Or can you I, not tell us yet? Well I have looked um and I, I haven't done like a full extensive thing. So the my plan was and this plan is working out well. Um <laughs> I sampled, I got about nine different samples, um, and then I'm going to look at them under a scanning electron microscope. So can you okay. scan a fancy, fancy microscope? Um, mm. and actually, on Thursday, I looked at the first few samples under the microscope, and it is definitely not cedar. Okay. That's okay. What I say. It is not, not cedar, and it is... One thing I am maybe thinking about is that there were different, there could have been different types of wood use. Like there was a packing material that looked like they combined like fiber and plaster. I'm sorry, a mummy packing material? Yeah. Well, this had, this had <laughs> tons and tons of different layers. And I think the wood, I don't know, the wood was like covered lots of different times. And then they, they basically, I think from what I got the impression of like the way if you could like use, if you can make a paste out of sawdust and then just like stuff that in cracks, I think sometimes that happens. So it's like, um, what is it? Plyb- uh, spackle? MDF. Like, yeah, like, oh. like the spackle. Yeah. Also spackle. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> maybe, we maybe just puttied some- it together. Yeah. yeah. And maybe some cedar. I, I'm not sure. But but from what I've seen, it was not cedar. It is not a conifer. It is definitely and it definitely could be sycamore. Mm. Um, but I also suspect it might be something else, too. But I have to I need to look at my samples better. So I don't want to. Well, stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be expecting an update once you figure that out. Oh, also, the, the funny thing is, too, like a week after this happened, uh, my uh, the director of collections, Michaela Schmuel, uh, who she's wonderful, uh, saw one of the people involved with the project. And they already were like, so what's the wood? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. It's more complicated just, than taking you like at a, it, right? You know what wood yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. You just, You're supposed you to be it, able to just. Yeah. Dissecting microscopes, you just put it under there and then blam, you can tell. And it's like. Because oh, you can yeah, read the serial do. number and then you just look it up and you're like, okay. This what, is no, definitely. No, she already said it's a, it's a wood, not a serial. <laughs> 
Thank you. We're going to take another break. <laughs> so because of that. What, what she's done. I'll be in the corner facing the wall. And we'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Hey, we're back. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Madeline. Hello. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about your own specialization? Because I I browsed through your dissertation. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, and I was struck by how you essentially had to become an expert or at least an entry level expert in both paleoethnobotany and the archaeology of the place where you work. So you and that's the same for for what I did as well. Not not paleoethnobotany, but like to do what I did, I also had to be an expert in southwestern Europe and animal bones. Yeah, and this mm-hmm. like blew my mind as a person who has not written a dissertation um, that it's it's not as though you're like I'm focusing on this one thing and I'm going to talk about plants and 300 li- pages later still plants. Like for mm-hmm. you, you had an extensive amount of time spent on calcolithic Anatolia. So do you find this to be typical for most specialists you work with, or are there people that get to just do like plants (laughs) or or bones or whatever? (laughs) Hey, I mean, I get it. We're talking to a plant person today. It's bones, whatever, but still (laughs) my feelings. Thanks for noticing Oh, uh, <laughs> there, there, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, I would say my dissertation is filled with a lot of background chapters. Well, and especially like, <laughs> and then today I learned that your master's work was on, was, was looking at the Neolithic stairs in, in Jordan. So a totally different environment totally different time period and it's just and like architecture to me that like you can have all of that in your brain and what's that like yeah, yeah what's it, that like it, it, <laughs> it comes and goes no. <laughs> i i mean i think it's really interesting in archaeology and i i am of two minds of this question So really, I think that the work that I do, it means nothing if I don't also if I can't put it in context with the people who were Mm -hmm. doing it. And that's why I love archaeology and anthropology. Like, that's why I do what I do, because I I love people 
and I, and I love understanding what people are doing. And if I only just talk about the plants, then that does, that does nothing for me. Like there are so the, the bigger questions are the behavior questions are the people questions. Um, so it is, it is important for me to do my work, to also be able to understand the, uh, anthropological, uh, context of what's happening. Um, in terms of, but you have noticed that archaeology, just the nature of archaeology, it privileges some information over other information. Hmm. <laughs> does it? You know, I think it does. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because in everyone who writes a dissertation becomes a specialist in something. It's, right. it's just that some people's specialization, they assume that everyone is going to be interested and care and needs to know about it. And for other people's specialization, they're happy to only have a few people care and think oh. and understand it. Thanks for coming to my party. <laughs> And I mean, I don't, I don't know. That sounds unnecessarily mean, but it's <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's really, I would agree that, um, yeah, there are some things that have maybe, it's, maybe it's because some specializations are relatively new. Um, and so, you know, it's, it might not have come to everyone's attention just how much about human behavior you can learn from certain types of very specialist information. But it'll, I bet it'll catch up. Yeah. I hope it'll catch up. And, and I have to say, like, the, the site that I work at, Chadar Huyuk in Turkey, and pretty much any site that I do work at, um, they they care a lot about, like, what what I have to say. Um, and I am, a, I am a valued member of the, uh, of the team. Absolutely. But I also, I think in archeology, span like we can't just the nature of it, the history of archeology, span the nature of archeology, span a lot of dating things and like serial chronologies and th things like that. Things that tell you when the site tell you fairly easily and recognizably when the site uh, existed or the, or the strata that you're excavating existed and stuff um, mm -hmm. that those things are viewed as common knowledge and, and important that everyone understand these things because they're easy visual cues of that situate you in time. Plants don't do that. <laughs> People were using this. They were eating and eating and using the same plants for thousands of years. Yeah, because that's what was there to eat. Yeah, that's what was there. That's what's still there. It doesn't. It doesn't give you the same like. It doesn't clue you in in the same way. And I am just someone who is perfectly happy to let other people argue about. <laughs> about the the specific situation things like um one thing it is important to me and one thing that I do 
I guess I, I do value a lot are the like 10 or so years that I spent as a field archaeologist going to field schools and excavating on sites and things like that. So I'm very comfortable and understand the archaeological mindset. I'm very comfortable on an actual site when they're excavating and understanding that archaeological context itself, like that actual trench digging context is so very important to then analyzing my own samples. So I value, you know, ceramic typologies and lithic typologies and architectural um, uh, reconstructions and um, histories and things like that. And, and I understand them. And again, let other people, <laughs> if people want to argue about that, that's great. Like they do their work. I'll just take their work and I'll apply it to what I'm seeing. And, and it's always very exciting when it matches up, which in my case, I'm very excited that my plants match up with what the, uh, what the, uh, field archeologists say too. So, <laughs> Yay! So, <laughs> that's very gratifying. <laughs> I think this is a common thing. And I think this actually happens to like everyone, all archaeologists, to be, you're a specialist in one thing, and then you bring in the context of another. It's just sometimes it's more apparent that you're bringing in a separate context outside your wheelhouse, and sometimes you can kind of pretend that that extra context <laughs> is <laughs> is also uh, your wheelhouse. <laughs> okay. yep. yeah. Definitely never done that every week. <laughs> into a microphone for strangers on the internet. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so now we get to our last two questions, which are the fun ones that we ask every guest on the podcast. Maybe the hardest questions also. Also, I really feel like we should start asking everyone what their favorite archaeological plant is. Oh, yeah. Just because like, that is a really great like, yeah. Do I have one? I don't know if I have one. I like plant remains that are found in coprolites. Because mm. they, that pretty much tells you that that went into somebody's mouth. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty, you know, oh. it's, a, it's a pretty good indicator. Yeah. Anyway. Good what's context that? plant remains. <laughs> Excellent context. And for listeners who haven't listened to our poop episode, a coprolite is preserved feces. Anyway, um, hey, so how about this question? What is either something that you think is the best thing about anthropology or archaeology, or if this is easier, your favorite thing about anthropology and archaeology? Like I said, people. <laughs> Just people. Um, but really, my most favorite archaeological artifact ever is the standard of ore. Ha. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you mean the music sound box of Ur? Yeah, the the weird box that's tiny and beautiful and and, and was definitely not held up on a stick during battle. Yeah, no, it definitely was not. I mean, I just it is so fast. One, no, it's, I it's gorgeous. The, it's gorgeous. The first time I saw it, it was it was and so this both of the answers to these two things are are throwbacks to my Bryn Mawr days. I can't get get away from it. Sorry, um, none of us can. <laughs> the first time I saw it was a surprise, and it was like 
I'm pretty sure it was the (laughs) spring semester of my freshman year. So I had taken um, the Near Eastern and Egypt course and I was in the middle of the Greek and Roman and we went to the uh, Philly Art Museum and on like visiting display there was a standard of war like in the middle of the room Ooh. and I was just like what I was like this thing <laughs> that I had studied from from my preferred sort of uh, geographical area of archaeology that we learned at Bryn Mawr and it was like tiny. It's like seeing a celebrity but I guess it's like seeing yeah. a celebrity and then realizing that it's Danny DeVito and he's tiny. Yeah but that was part of like the love like suddenly it was this cute little box which we had been warned it was a cute box but still we see it <laughs> up like in like a I probably oh, that lecture slide. slide yeah, an yeah. slide like it's that is like 30 times bigger than it really is. <laughs> like, and so it was just it was this adorable, beautifully preserved thing. And my heart just melted. And since then, I visited multiple times at the British Museum. And I get like so excited. And I take selfies with it every time. So there's like <laughs> so there's like a series of pictures of me in the standard of or as I like we're, every three years or something. <laughs> we're going to need one of those. <laughs> sure, I can send you i can send you over yes. yeah yes, i want to yes, see yes. you like i want to see your hairstyle change and like you know <laughs> just like fashion change but it stays five the years same. later we still love each other yeah yeah and it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful i i can pretend it reciprocates and, and then also like why you know you have the war side and the peace side so like what are they trying to say like what who who made this why are they trying to bulk themselves up this way like what's happening why are you so small why are you so cute like oh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what amber asks her dog all the time i do every day when i get home from work i ask her how she got so small that's what i would do to the standard of war how did you get so small (laughs) i am very excited that uh that i have adopted the standard of war as my pet Mm -hmm. yeah while appreciating its cultural significance, of course. Of course, of course. That we of don't course. fully understand. Yeah, it's just, but but why? But why, though? Well, and then our last question. If you could have been a fly on the wall for any moment or discovery or event from the past or in sort of the past of the discipline, um, what would you choose? Is it the standard? <laughs> It's it's close to that. It's just or three. Like I right. always really wanted to go to or three and be like, okay, so you have all these economic texts, but what else? Yeah. What what else? What are you doing? Like what, what are you doing? Like? Oh yeah. Okay. Like who? Ca- like what are your like? What do you guys care about? What does your agriculture actually look about? Are you really like using the surplus? to pay people and to put people in indentured servitude like who do you care about what any anything just i want to see or three somehow get to know what they're thinking about get to know those people and then i'll feel deeply satisfied that's a good one (laughs) i want that for you (laughs) me too (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, I feel like I know a lot more about paleoethnobotany now. Hopefully our listeners do as well. Yeah. I hope so. I know a lot more. I feel a lot better. I really feel like I processed bad feelings. Do you want to... Yeah, I was going to say you want to... <laughs> you want to go back to being excited about plants? Yeah, plants. Plants, man. Pretty great. It is, it is a tough jump from, oh my God, this person knows everything about the landscape and the environment to lists of scientific <laughs> plant names with strange decimal, like just decimal recordings next to it. You're like, yeah. oh, I don't know what this means. <laughs> hey, if our um, listeners were interested in getting into paleoethnobotany, other than that one article that you referenced, are there any other resources that would be sort of particularly good for them to look at? Is there a good book about, about that Peabot? A good methods book that just came out was Mac and Jade um, and Christina Warner's book. Oh, Mac Marston? Yeah. Yeah, he was my advisor. Yeah. My dissertation yeah. advisor. Their method book, they came out with a method book and it's on Project Muse. So it's it's freely accessible to anyone. And it's Oh, that's great. the best. And it's a good method book, but method books aren't the best things to yeah it's not fun to read methods really get methods it's good to read them into it uh i'm going to i'll just maybe send you link like i'll think about that and then send you yeah, okay some link perfect um for like exciting not necessarily oh here's one then this is more ethnobotany than archaeobotany so it's dealing with um relationships with plants but uh robin wall kimmerer's book braiding sweetgrass is an amazing Ooh. ethnobotanical book uh, and also about sort of anishinaabe practices and native plant practices and she oh that's cool and she's a botanist and she's also a native woman and the book also spends a lot of time talking about the tension between what she learned in sort of Western scientific PhD program versus what native peoples think like, and how they relate to plants and things like that. And her like sort of traditional versus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And it's, Oh, that's so cool. It's a long book, but you can just pick up any chapter and sort of delve in where you want to. That's perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. It's so much fun. Yay! Yay! This was fun for us, too. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.